First reading is taken from Mark 16, verses 1 to 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The second reading is from Corinthians 15. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom were still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So I want to start with a question. I wonder if there are any fans of the rock group Queen amongst us here today. Don't worry, you don't have to declare it now, but uh, I'm sure you know who you are. The lead singer of Queen was Freddie Mercury, and he died in 1991. There was an article written about him more recently in the Sunday Times about how he lives on in the lives of his fans. Here's an excerpt from that article. So Freddie is not dead. He may not have been spotted in as many supermarkets as Elvis, but his fans are just as reluctant to let him go. Pop stars are immortal because they provide the soundtrack for other people's lives. Many figures in history live on in this sense because their followers are reluctant to let them go. Their influence lives on in the lives of their followers. And some people think that's the same 
with Jesus Christ. They think that the resurrection of Jesus is a powerful spiritual inspiration to us to seek our own spiritual and moral resurrection and live better lives ourselves. Or still others will say that the resurrection of Christ is merely a self-comforting projection of our own deep desires for eternal life, but it has no basis in reality. But the intriguing thing is, as soon as we start to actually read the resurrection accounts in the Gospels and the Epistles of the New Testament, it quickly becomes clear that the first followers of Jesus Christ are claiming so much more than these more modern opinions about Christ's resurrection. See, the stunning claim of the New Testament is that Jesus Christ rose physically from the dead in history, never to die again. And the results of this event in history have amazing and transforming significance for every one of us here this afternoon. So just for a few minutes now, I want us to consider the evidence, some of the evidence for the physical resurrection of Jesus, and then reflect on what that means for us. So first, the evidence for the resurrection of Christ. Mark's Gospel account of the resurrection that we have uh, here on our service sheets is very short compared to the other Gospels. And the whole of the Gospel actually finishes at verse 8, very abruptly. And the most likely explanation for this is that actually the original ending of Mark's Gospel has been lost. But even in these first eight verses of chapter 16, you get the two key pieces of evidence for the resurrection referred to. Uh, in verse 6, the fact that the tomb was empty, and in verse 7, the promise that Jesus will appear to his disciples and Peter in Galilee. Now this verse has the promise of these appearances, but it's the other Gospels and the Apostle Paul who provide the evidence of these appearances actually taking place. And that's why we've got the second uh, reading on, on your sheets today that Usha read for us. Chapter 15 of the first letter of Corinthians, where the Apostle Paul gives uh, a summary of uh, some of these appearances. So the first piece of evidence is the empty tomb, and we see that in this passage from Mark, verses 5 and 6. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. As well you might be. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. All the gospel accounts and ancient historians agree on this fact. The tomb was empty. And the gospels claim that the reason that it was empty is because Christ was physically raised. Now, if one's sceptical of this conclusion, one needs to come up with credi credible alternatives. And the strongest of these uh, down the centuries is this. We haven't got time today to go into all of them, but here's the, here's the strongest one. And that's that the disciples stole the body and invented the resurrection to save face after the very disappointing end of their teacher. But when you stop for just a moment to think about this, it just doesn't stack up. None of these disciples were expecting a resurrection. There simply wasn't a general Jewish expectation of the death uh, or resurrection of the Messiah. 
And this is demonstrated in the disciples themselves. They consistently misunderstand and reject Jesus' predictions about his death and resurrection during the Gospel accounts. And by the time he's been tried and sentenced to death, every single one of his disciples have deserted him. And in Luke's Gospel, when the women come to report the empty tomb to them three days after his death, they instantly um, dismiss their reports as complete nonsense. They think they've gone mad. The disciples simply aren't expecting Jesus' resurrection. They think it's all over at his death. Also, secondly, if the disciples did steal the body and then make up the resurrection accounts, it's unthinkable that they would have written in the women as the first witnesses of the resurrected Jesus. The reason for that is in the culture of the time, the witness of a woman officially counted for nothing. So if you were making it up, you just simply wouldn't have um, them as your first vital witnesses. It's very striking in the accounts. Thirdly, on this theory, we're also required to believe that these, all these disciples spent the rest of their lives preaching the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, managing to keep up the hoax between themselves, and ending up dying martyrs' deaths for what they knew to be a lie. After 2,000 years, there remains no credible alternative explanation for this empty tomb. The second piece of evidence Paul refers to in the passage from 1 Corinthians comes in verses 5 to 7 of that passage. Um, do turn it up again. It's the resurrection appearances. Because if we've just been left with the evidence of the empty tomb, the death of Jesus would have forever been an unsolved mystery. However, these resurrection appearances mean that we are actually presented with some real evidence to explain the empty tomb including those referred to here by Paul in this passage, the New Testament writers record 11 different instances of Jesus appearing to different sets of people, different places, different times, over a period of about six weeks following his death. And again, um, we need to think of alternative explanations for these, and uh, the strongest one down the years as an alternative explanation for these resurrection appearances has been hallucination. It runs something like this. The disciples and larger crowds of his followers were all terribly disappointed that Jesus had died, and they longed so much to see him again that they hallucinated that they did. But there are some fairly obvious problems with this theory. As we've seen already, the Gospels record for us a group of people who are not expecting to see a resurrected Jesus at all. Secondly, hallucinations are normally highly specific to certain types of people at certain times and in certain places. However, the sheer variety of people, times and places where the resurrection appearances take place rule this out too. And also, hallucinations are characteristically highly individual experiences, but you'll see here that Paul mentions a group of 500 people that Jesus appeared to at one time. And notice also something interesting about this 500 in verse 6. He says, some are still living, though some have fallen asleep, by which he means they've since died. Now, why does he make specific mention of this? Well, he's referring to these people as eyewitnesses. He's saying these resurrection appearances weren't private experiences. They were public events. 
with eyewitnesses still alive who could be cross-examined by those interested to find out more. It's interesting, Paul is clearly so confident about his claims of the appearances of Christ that he's inviting people to come and test the evidence for themselves. And people who know very little about Christianity often say it's a matter of blind faith to believe in Jesus Christ. But it doesn't seem to me that Paul is asking us to have blind faith the way he's writing here. He's asking us to examine the evidence and follow it where it leads. So we have the evidence of the empty tomb, the evidence of the resurrection appearances. And for now, perhaps I could just pose a question to anyone here for whom the evidence of Christ's resurrection is new. Will you keep examining that evidence and follow it where it leads? Uh, if you'd like to, please come and talk to me afterwards or, or contact us. Um, there are contact details on these cards uh, about courses that we regularly run that examine the evidence uh, for the Christian faith and the essentials of its message. Let's now uh, turn to the meaning of the resurrection. And I want to focus on three things that it means for us. The first is that it means Jesus really is God. Paul Daniels, the magician, was quoted in the media a few years back saying that Jesus was just a very talented magician on a par with himself. And the satirical uh, news programme, Have I Got News For You, picked up on this and featured Paul Daniels' remarks on the programme. Uh, after which Paul Merton then suggested that perhaps we should take Paul Daniels at his word and crucify him to see, if, to see if he might resurrect himself. That Jesus' resurrection from the dead is more than just a conjuring trick of a local, very talented Palestinian magician 2,000 years ago. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus makes a variety of claims to be God. He claims to forgive sins. He accepts the worship of people. He says he's going to judge the world. He takes the Old Testament name of God for himself, and he claims to be one with God the Father. And he performs miracles in his lifetime which endorse these claims. But the resurrection is the ultimate demonstration that these claims are true. The resurrection means any guessing games about God really are over. The God who made the universe became a human being and revealed himself to us. And he gave final proof of this through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So it shows that he is God. Second, the resurrection of Christ means that our sins have been paid for. So as Christ died on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken on the cross for our sins. And the ripping of the temple curtain at the moment of his death was the first sign that his sacrifice for our sins was successful. Full access to God was now possible. The way to God in the Holy of Holies in the temple was now open. But it's Christ's resurrection from the dead three days later that definitively proves that his final cry from the cross wasn't a cry of defeat, but it was a cry of victory. 
You see, because our sins have been truly paid for by him, death couldn't hold him. The resurrection, if you like, is God's stamp in history over our sins, and it, and it reads simply, paid in full. So it means whoever we are, wherever we have been, where, whatever we've done in our lives, here today, 30th of April 2019, we can know that our sins are truly forgiven because Christ died and because he rose. Thirdly, the resurrection also means that we can have real hope in the face of death. Death is the great taboo in our society. We don't find it easy to talk about because it stubbornly remains our great unanswered question. And we've got various coping strategies around this. We might try and make light of it by joking about it. So, for instance, my favourite epitaph is Spike Milligan's. On his grave it reads, I told you I was ill. Woody Allen, of course. It's not that I'm afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. Or we have other strategies, like we keep busy, we try and forget about it and perhaps exercise some wishful thinking along the lines of, oh, I'm sure it will be all right when it comes to that moment. Or, like John Peel, some of us are honest about our fear of it. When asked in a radio interview in 2004 what his biggest fear was, he said, my biggest fear, death, I guess, the fact of it and the manner of it. The resurrection of Christ means that we can have real hope in the face of death. Because Christ has been through death himself and lives again, so can we if we put our trust in him. This is how C.S. Lewis uh, writes about it in his book, Miracles. Referring to Christ, he says, he has forced open a door which had been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has opened. And such is the promise of Christ in those famous words from John's Gospel that we hear read out at funerals. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. So if today you don't have a certain hope in the face of death, isn't it time you put your trust in the one who has defeated death and can take you through it too? As we close, the resurrection of Christ is not some nice spiritual idea to inspire us to moral renewal or a comforting myth that we made up to persuade ourselves that eternal life really exists. No, Jesus Christ was physically raised from the dead in history. All the evidence points to that conclusion. And because that really happened, we can know for certain three wonderful things today as we close. Jesus Christ is the way to know God. Our sins truly have been paid for, and death really has been defeated. Let's pray together as we close. First lines from the first hymn that we sang together this afternoon. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me.
No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you that because you brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, we can know that he is both Lord and Christ, that our sins are truly paid for, and we can have real hope in the face of death. In your mercy and by your spirit, we pray, please enable us to put our trust in him. Amen.